the best of the Jewish views on the UN resolution over Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Remembering Amy Winehouse from her father Mitch Winehouse ahead of an exhibition about her life and the extraordinary bar mitzvah boy who donated some of his bar mitzvah money to help Hatzola UK. Now with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The once all-powerful Academy Award-winning producer Harvey Weinstein has been fired from his own company over his alleged sexual harassment. The board of the Weinstein Company, which includes the movie mogul's brother Bob, announced his dismissal in the light of new information about his misconduct. It's also been reported that his wife, the British fashion designer Georgina Chapman, has left Mr Weinstein. The Board of Deputies has urged the government to tread carefully if it changes the way organ donation works in the UK. Currently, the onus is on individuals to opt in, but in future, people might be required to specifically opt out. A Board Vice President, Marie van der Zyl, said the removal of organs does raise religious issues and urged the authorities to protect the freedom of religious practice. A blogger who's accused of posting an anti-Semitic song online is to stand trial in January following a campaign by a Jewish charity. Alison Chabloz, who's 53, penned the song, which describes Auschwitz as a theme park. She performed it at a conference of the nationalistic group The London Forum, and it was then posted on her blog. Chabloz, from Derbyshire, originally faced a private prosecution by the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, but the Crown Prosecution Service, after criticism of its inaction, has now pressed charges. The minister responsible for negotiating Britain's trading relationships post-Brexit has announced that Israel will be a key partner in the future. Liam Fox, who called himself a long-standing friend of the Israeli people, said the UK was already the first port of call in Europe for Israeli investment, with 300 companies listed here. And finally, Sir Cliff Richard took to the tennis courts of Herzliya this week, a day before his concert in Tel Aviv. It was in aid of a charity, the Freddie Crevine Foundation, which gives tennis coaching to 8- to 18-year-olds and encourages Israeli-Arab children to mix with Jewish youngsters. Sir Cliff was helping to fundraise for the foundation, which he said brings young people together and encourages them to forget divisions. That's the news. Here's the sport from Andrew. Thank you, Viv. Israel ended their 2018 World Cup qualifying campaign with a 1-0 defeat to Spain on Monday evening. The loss, coupled with a 1-0 win in Liechtenstein three days earlier, meant they finished fourth in the group, which will, in all likelihood, cost Elisha Levy his job as the national team manager. Better news for Israeli athletes saw three of their judokas win gold medals at the Grand Prix event in Uzbekistan. Uri Sasson, Sagi Muki and Bettina Temokova all scaled the podium in first place, with Sassoon's win being all the more significant given that it was the first time he'd taken part in a tournament for over a year. And finally, should Israel qualify for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, both their team and fans have been assured they would be welcome in the Gulf state. The leader of the bid's organising committee, Hassan El Tawadi, said, Everyone is welcome. It's a simple answer. Everybody is welcome. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Best of The Jewish Views for 5777. I'm Phil Dave and we'll start off with the present, shall we? Joining me to go through this week's edition of The Jewish News is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. And Richard, let's have a look at the front page for this week. And the headline reads, Clash Between Competing Holocaust Education Hubs. Yes, uh, and unedifying public spat between the uh, Imperial War Museum, uh, one of the great flagship institutions of Britain, and the soon-to-be, hopefully, Westminster Holocaust Memorial and Public Learning Centre hub, which hopefully will be opening in the next couple of years in the in the heart of London. This, of course, uh, readers will be familiar, was a product of the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation, which was launched by the then Prime Minister, David Cameron. And this was over two years ago. The next couple of weeks, we'll see the blueprints whittled down to the number one design and we will finally be able to see which one will be taking pride of place in the heart of Westminster opposite the Houses of Parliament. This week, two years after they first had the information, the Imperial War Museum have have warned that there could be a, a clash of interests, a divide here, because what they are doing is rolling out their own new Holocaust exhibition and learning centre. They're concerned there could be some overlap here. It was a, a public utterance that has been met with, should we say, silence by many Holocaust organisations and institutions here in the UK. The main question on everyone's lips is, why now? Well, the thing that strikes us so bewildering with this particular story, Jack, I would have thought anyway, is that surely this is not where the emphasis should be. It's about remembering the Holocaust. It's not about disputes between two organisations. Yes, you don't think that the Holocaust is something that there can be competition with. You know, we have lots of charities, we have lots of schools, we have lots of synagogues, and they all kind of compete for members. You'd think that Holocaust education is the one topic which we can all be united in. And the plans for this have been public for a very long time. So it's very strange that this clash is happening now, so close to when the winning design is going to be unveiled. So I think this is very disruptive and it doesn't look good for the Jewish community. And hopefully it can be resolved cleanly soon. It's an ugly debate to be having in public. And as we've put in our editorial comment this week, I think there is a key role for both centres. You've got the public centre, hopefully, that will be launching in Westminster, which will be a place where everybody, tourists, millions of people that walk through that public space every year can reflect, have a, a moment of introspection. And then you've got the Imperial War Museum's exhibit, which is obviously more of an educational research and an academic sphere. So clearly two key roles, two different roles, and hopefully places that can complement each other. Very strange. Let us hope that they can resolve differences much before long. Sort of sticking with the subject of the Holocaust, what's this about new technology that might be able to solve the mystery of Anne Franks? Yes, who betrayed the Franks is a a question that's never really adequately been analysed in the almost 75 years since her and her family were were betrayed and ended up at Auschwitz and then ultimately in Bergen-Belsen. There's quite a lot of historical cold cases that keep coming up from time and again. uh, Raoul Wallenberg, how do they build Stonehenge? Who was Jack the Ripper? There, there are many cases of, in, from hundreds of, of years gone by that would have benefited from modern police investigative 
techniques. So a group of 19 FBI agents and forensic investigators have, have pledged in the next year they're going to get to the bottom of who exactly it was that betrayed Anne Frank and her and her family and, and unfortunately uh, left them to their demise. See, I'm going to just put this out there as a, a devil's advocate, if you will, because I don't necessarily disagree with them trying to solve this mystery. But at the same time, I can't help but wonder, as you mentioned, all of those infamous crimes and curiosities that have bewildered us for so many years. And of course, modern technology would have helped solve those crimes in their day. But is there a little bit of a danger in that today's crimes and today's problems are being not so much put by the wayside, but potentially suffering because we're putting too much emphasis on something that happened in the past? I guess there there could be a problem with that. You know, there are many modern mysteries which are yet to be solved. One that comes to my mind is the disappearance of young Madeleine McCann, still unsolved. There are still Holocaust survivors living today, and there are still unsolved mysteries aside from just Anne Frank. So I, I think, yes, it would be interesting to know how this happened. But, you know, there are lots of things that happened in the Holocaust that would also not get the attention that they perhaps deserve. Yeah, I don't know if modern cases are suffering as a result of this. I think it's it's more of a side industry. The facts are that, I mean, when, when I was a child, there, there wasn't the forensic DNA that you've now got that you can bring to bear to cases that to swiftly solve things that in previous decades would remain mysteries as some of those cases I, I mentioned still are. But that's what I was getting at. It's not so much about, look, maybe suffering is the wrong word, but what I'm trying to get at is that it shouldn't be to the detriment of modern day cases. So if it is a sideline, then great. But if it's actually pulling resources away from crimes that are betwixting us today, then surely that's not a good thing. Well, I think this could be a bit of a case study. If this works, then it can be applied to more modern things. And, you know, if they can figure out a mystery from 70 years ago, 75 years ago, then that's only good for modern investigations as well. Okay. well, talking of modern things, something that was very modern that was announced at the Tory party conference only last week was Prime Minister Theresa May saying that as far as organ donations concerned, she plans to introduce an opt out system that could cause problems with Halakha. Yeah, I mean, this is one of these perennials that we talk about. It's no less interesting for the frequency of our discussion about it. Presumed consent. Now, in Scotland and Wales, that was rolled out in in recent months. The Tory party conference, Theresa May, infamous now, main speech, amongst the things she mentioned was that she wants to roll out the same system here in the here in England. Now, obviously, that has huge implications, as you say, for, for Halakha, because what constitutes death in Jewish law is is different to what constitutes death outside of it. So the London Beth Din rules that brain death is not considered final in Jewish law, which differs. So that there's a, there's a moral argument here. There's a religious argument here, and there are there are questions to be answered in terms of how flexible modern Judaism is in, in terms of the demands that are placed upon it in terms of modern medicine. Fifty thousand people in the last few years have had this this awful, in, enduring experience of, of waiting for a, a life-saving operation. Some 6,000 have died in the last few years while waiting. Around 300 of those are children. So those are some numbers to think about when you come to your your view on this issue. See, the problem is, I suppose, that none of us around this particular table are rabbinical enough to actually be able to argue as far as the side of Judaism is concerned, although we know the basics. But Surely one could argue 
that being in a position to save someone else's life has got to be one of the greatest mitzvahs that anyone could do. Yes, definitely. And I think if, if you were on the operating table in need of a kidney or, or another organ, I think you'd be in favour of this uh, if you needed it personally. So I think this is one of these issues that might divide people, but if and when it comes in and people benefit from it, I think people might have a, a different different view on it. Okay, well, we heard that just now in the news with Viv. Something else that we heard also just now in the news is that Cliff Richard has been playing tennis to encourage peace. Yes, the legendary British musician was in Israel this week. He's playing a concert in Tel Aviv on Tuesday night, and he made a stop in Herzliya. And he did so to promote peace between Israeli Arab and Jewish children. He took part in a fundraiser, the Freddie Crivine Foundation, and he met a lot of kids and he met the coach who's a Muslim fellow called Mohammed Rashwan. And there's some really lovely pictures on the website if you wanted to go and have a look. It's nice. And also, I think that what's important is that all too often we hear potentially people in the music world and other celebrities decrying Israel and actually almost provoking the tensions between the two sides. The fact that we've actually got someone such as Sir Cliff, who is obviously a big enough name to send, as it were, shockwaves or actually make an impact saying what he's saying and doing what he's doing is at last it's actually quite nice to see something positive rather than so negative yes definitely and he has a history of promoting peace in israel in 2006 he helped re-establish the nazareth tennis court and he played tennis with israeli kids there and before his concert in 2013 he also donated funds to support kind of individual talented players travel and get coaching grants so he does put kind of action it's not just words it's not just nice statements he, he does actually have some substance fantastic well there you go unfortunately that's where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week but thank you both very much indeed don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the jewish news every thursday ordinarily across london or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk now, it was towards the start of 5777 that we heard from our first guests. The latest in a string of UN resolutions over Israel had just been announced, and a certain backlash was felt as both the US and the UK abstained from the vote. Well, by default, this meant that both countries backed the motion that described the West Bank and East Jerusalem as occupied, and settlements as having no legal validity. As you can imagine, this caused quite a stir in the community and different organisations reacted in their respective ways. We spoke to Paul Charney from the Zionist Federation and Hannah Weisfeld from Yechad and I started by asking Paul to tell us how the ZF reacted to the resolution. The resolution by the UN we see as an anti-Israel, anti-current Israeli establishment resolution. We are less surprised by a resolution of being anti-Israel coming from the UN as opposed to being surprised by the, the fact that the US blindsided cowardly last minute before Obama leaves office decides to stab Israel in the back together with the UK supporting such a favorable resolution against Israel. Okay, and Hannah, I have to ask you, obviously, how does Yechad view the resolution? 
Well, uh, we re- uh, view this resolution as being anti the settlements. As far as we're concerned, there's nothing in this resolution that is anti-Israel, and I'd be interested maybe in a minute if we have time for discussion to hear from Paul which part of the resolution he sees as actually being anti-Israel. I would say the fact that it highlights the need in an equal part to, end, to ending sort of continued construction settlements, to end terrorism and incitement, I would say is a positive thing. The fact that it recognises Israel's right to exist and the importance of a agreed, negotiated resolution to the conflict, I would say is a good thing. Okay, well, Paul, you heard Hannah there. She did say that she wants to know what exactly about the resolution do you find anti-Israel? The fact that it was commended by Fatah, Hamas and Islamic Jihad means they see it as a political win. The specifics of the resolution itself are less, I would say, less dramatic than the the significance of the resolution being passed itself. The U.S. have rejected such resolutions against Israel for decades and have vetoed such resolutions. We know that Obama has had a difficult position with Israel and with the settlements for many years, specifically against the Netanyahu government. And we see this as a personal attack by him. It's his opportunity to, to make his point clear against Netanyahu. We know that they were very instrumental in keeping this quiet and pretty much blindsiding Israel the last minute with this resolution. If it was so pro-Israel, then the manner by which this resolution was passed would not have been done in this way. There seems to be an awful lot of confusion in terms of where boundaries for Israel actually lie. So with locations such as the Golan Heights, the West Bank and all of that, that area seems to be a subject of much contention because people don't necessarily know where the boundaries is. I'd be interested to sort of see if either of you sort of know factually what exactly is the limit as to where Israel has a legal right and who sets that legal right for where they can build. Hannah, perhaps let's get you on this. Yeah, well, the International Court of Justice ruling is that every piece of territory that was captured after 1967 that hasn't been negotiated on is considered occupied. And therefore, the international community recognises Israel's legal borders as being what we either know as the 1949 armistice lines or the 1967 Green Line. And interestingly, what this resolution says, which I think is a positive thing, is that while it doesn't recognise changes that Israel makes pre negotiations to land over that over those boundaries it does recognize that there will be negotiations and therefore there will be land swaps so you know there's nothing in this resolution that predetermines the borders of israel so if it's occupied territory paul then surely that means that israel is wrong to build there well i mean it was occupied by jordan pre-67 it's apparently occupied by israel post-67 the legality of the borders of that area are not 100 percent clear there is Many legal arguments against that. So if they're not 100% clear, how can we necessarily justify Israel's actions as they are? So, well, according to Israel, they are legally, they've been legally taken through defensive wars and through management of the area itself. So Israel sees it as legal territory. But Israel also recognizes that at a point where a peace agreement will be made, there will be a territorial agreement, which includes some land swaps. So... And at the moment, we like to rather leave it as undefined. And rather than having another major issue of a potential future peace agreement taken out of the hands of Israel, with having now no say of where those borders may or may not be, which have a huge defensive issue against it, what Israel wants to do is make all big six, all the big six major issues clear, part of a peace agreement with the entire Arab nations, with the Palestinians, rather than them internationalizing each 
point of the agreement and taking that out of the hands of Israel to even even negotiate. Paul, I, I just think we need to be clear about a couple of pieces of factual information. First of all, Israel doesn't recognize the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights as legal territory. It, it's The government calls it disputed and the High Court has called it a belligerent occupation. So, you know, even the government of Israel doesn't see what's over the 1967 borders as the same as what is inside Israel. The other thing I would say is that what you've just said is exactly what is in this document. And I've actually got it in front of me. It says nothing about predetermining the borders. It says quite the opposite, which is that, you know, in terms of changes to the borders, it says other than those agreed by parties through negotiations. And what it goes on to say is that actually it calls for both sides to urgently negotiate to come to an agreement. It doesn't say anything about what the border should be. You know, I would just challenge this notion that Obama is sort of giving BBA a, you know, a final rap on the knuckles because... I don't know what your interpretation is, but I, I find it interesting that Obama is the US president that has not implemented the veto less than any other US president in uh, Israel's history. So Reagan, I think, allowed 21 critical resolutions of Israel to go through the United Nations Security Council. George Bush, Bush Sr. allowed nine. George Bush Jr. allowed six. And actually, Obama has allowed one. I think, I can't remember who it is, but I think the only other president that's allowed remotely anything close was two. And so this is a man who's just pledged $38 billion to Israel in an aid package in September last year. It's the biggest aid package that Israel's, that America has ever pledged to any other country. And he's never used his veto till, you know, last week. And, I, you know, I find the painting of Obama as this sort of monster that is trying to uh, do one over Israel and Bibi Netanyahu so far from the reality of where their relationship is that I just think that you have to look at it differently and think about, well, why is the international community, the UK, the USA, so frustrated with Israel at this point that it feels that this resolution would be helpful? Isn't it a fair comment to say, though, that because America is seen as Israel's biggest ally, is it not understandable that it's a very bitter pill to try and swallow when we see, as we being as global Jews, see the president of the US backing off from what could be a pretty fundamental resolution to the state of Israel? What I'm failing to understand here is what's so fundamental about it. The the roadmap in 2003 called on Israel to cease all building over the Green Line, including that that uh, is required, you know, according to Israel, for natural growth. It also demanded, which this resolution doesn't even mention, the dismantling of outposts. So we've already had this before in 2003. The UN and the US were both party to that roadmap. This is not a change of policy for any country. The US, the UK, uh, the United Nations, of course, all deem settlements illegal. That is the stated policy of all those of both those governments and the United Nations. So there's nothing actually in this resolution that changes the game at all. All it is doing, there's only two, there's four things this resolution calls for. And I went through it with a fine tooth comb. It calls for Israel to cease building. It doesn't ask Israel to dismantle. It asks for immediate steps to prevent all acts of violence against civilians, including acts of terror. It calls on both parties to act on the basis of international law and prevent to abstain from provocative actions. And it calls on all parties to continue collective efforts to launch credible negotiations. Okay, well, is that point. not reasonable then, Paul? No, it's a, it's a total misportrayal of what's, what's I've got it in here. front of me. I think you've me. missed the point entirely. I think what you're looking, you've missed the wood for the trees here. You can read the resolutions as many times as you like, but Alan Dershowitz himself, who's a, not a fan of settlements and disagrees with them, says this has been a betrayal by Obama. The timing of which he does this just before he leaves office, the manner of which he's done this, it's calling for other countries to treat 
Israeli areas within those those territories in Judea and Samaria as different. Treat them differently. The to the, Israeli to the, let me finish my speak. I allowed you to speak. I'd like you to okay. keep quiet. Let me finish my. Let me finish my point. It's it's calling for them to be treated differently. It's calling for the rest of those areas which are at the moment, even if we call it disputed areas, which we know which areas will be part of, of Israel during a, a peace. We will know which areas will be part of a peace agreement within Israel. You're calling those areas as disputed. You're calling areas of Jerusalem up to the up to the Wailing Mall, up to our, our, our Kotel as to being uh, disputed. The manner of which this has been done has been seen nothing, nothing other than a betrayal to the Jewish people. That's the mood of the Jewish community here. That's the mood of the Israeli community. When Kerry had his speech, I have to tell you the rest of Israel, most of the stations didn't even show the speech. We had Theresa May who came out and said, you've missed the point entirely herself. We have a protest rally on Sunday against the foreign common, uh, uh, against the, the the UK foreign Commonwealth Office, and against the against this UN resolution. Israel feels like this bashing, this stick, this whip, this whipping stick against Israel by the UN has been allowed by the US. And we won't allow it to stand. Right. I have to unfortunately say that regressively, seriously regressively, we are running short on time. So I utterly don't want to have to cut this conversation as short as we are going to have to. But I would ask both of you just to maybe summarize what you would like to see moving forward, Israel achieve and the outcome from all of this. Hannah, let's start with you. Well, I think it's very, what is a very positive outcome from this is that actually the need for international negotiations has been put right up back on the international agenda. They had fallen right off it. And it is a good thing that we have a resolution at the United Nations calling for Israel and the Palestinian Authority to sit down and negotiate and come to a comprehensive peace agreement. And that is a positive thing. And I think it is a great shame that people think that it is not a good thing that we have an international body that wants to support that happening. Okay, thank you very much. And Paul, what would you say? I would like to say a proper peace negotiation rather than unilateral steps by the Palestinians who are happy to ask for Israel to relinquish land and relinquish their part of the negotiation rather than them how about them recognizing Israel as a Jewish state? How about them relinquish, stopping violence? How about them sitting down to, to, to a peace table and accepting where we've had peace agreements like Ehud Olmert and, and Barak before and coming to the table in agreement? What we don't want to see are unilateral steps with them agreeing and, and forcing positions prior to a negotiation and essentially taking us further away from any peace deal. Paul Charney from the Zionist Federation and Hannah Weisfeld from Yechad talking to me there about the UN resolution over Israeli settlements in the West Bank. A very heated discussion, of course, one of much contention that continues right up until this day. You're listening to the best of The Jewish Views 5777. And still to come on this edition, we'll hear the extraordinary story of Miles Isaacs, the bar mitzvah boy who was determined to donate his bar mitzvah money to Hatzalah in order to help others. He'll be speaking to Diana Toman, our community editor, a little later on. But first, can you believe that it was six years ago that Amy Winehouse left our lives? During that time, her father Mitch and his family have done some extraordinary work in Amy's memory. Well, to celebrate this, the Jewish Museum in Camden have hosted a recurring exhibition on her life and her work. Arts editor Kate Fulton had the chance to speak to Mitch Winehouse ahead of the return of said exhibition to the Jewish Museum. Kate started by asking Mitch to tell us whose idea the exhibition was in the first place. 
The idea of the exhibition was my son and daughter-in-law, Alex and Reva, and they curated the original exhibition at the Jewish Museum in Camden, and they did a great job. It was a very moving tribute and exhibition, and I think they did a marvellous job. Was the I mean, it's obviously still, must be still quite hard, a hard thing to talk <coughs> about, Amy, but was there a particular time that you felt it was the, it was the right time, or is there a time that it was put on, put on now for a reason? Put on now for a reason. Yeah. I mean, don't forget, originally it was in the London Museum two years ago. Right, so, so it's just been brought oh, here. Four years ago, well, four years ago, actually, because my, my, I'm at my son's. So it was four years ago at the London Museum. So this is, this is sort of a triumphal return. It's been all around the world and it's back in London. But this isn't the, the debut of it. As I say, it's been all around the world. Okay, it's called a family portrait. <laughs> for yeah. people, obviously, because a lot of people won't have seen it and they want to know, what should they expect to see? Well, I don't know what they would expect to see, but I mean, you know, I mean, obviously there's, there's been lots said about Amy and she was a superstar and the drugs and alcohol and everything else. And this is about a normal Jewish kid growing up in North London, being part of a large family group. And it's kind of, it, it's very normal. It's the sort of normality of it, if that's the right word, of it, which, which I think makes it, uh, that's my grandson in the background. You know, I think that's what makes it so poignant is is that people think Amy was this great superstar and everything else. In reality, she was just a normal kid, you know, a normal kid from North London with parents and brother and uncles and aunts and babies and everything else. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like I can hear the family going on behind you. How yeah. did you originally decide what was going to go into the exhibition? Well, that was, that was very much up to my son and my daughter-in-law. They curated it and, you know, we had obviously lots of stuff that belonged to Amy and there were things that she kept which people don't normally keep, which was kind of also a, an insight into her personality. You know, she kept her, her school tie and she kept, I mean, from junior school, she kept her blazer or she kept Alex's blazer and she had her sweater from the junior school. Obviously, these things were very important to her. Yeah, so you walk around and you see her her clothes, her yeah. m- books, and presumably, obviously, photographs. Yeah. And when you when you walk around, how do you feel? When you what do you what did you feel looking around the, well, the exhibition? You know, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit more used to it now, but uh, you know, originally it was, it was incredibly emotional because it, it obviously reminded me of a time when you know we were all together. And, uh, you know, my mother and my stepfather and my uncles and aunts, they were lovely times. And, of course, Amy was a part of a very, very large family. Unfortunately, it's not so large now. It was very emotional and I found it very difficult. But, you know, once you get used to it, it's, it's actually very lovely. You mentioned her, her blazer and, and tie and things like that. Are there any other special favourites that you think captured her as a person that are, that are on, in the exhibition? <laughs> well, it... There's so much in there. You know, there's a record collection, there's a record player. When she moved into the big house in Camden Square, she thought that she'd lost all her family photographs. And then she found them. And then then two days before she passed away, I was going to New York, and she called me and she told me that she'd found the photographs in the big suitcase. And, of course, those photographs in the suitcase are in the exhibition. So that's extremely poignant for me. And, mm. you know, and what's even more poignant is, is that there's only one or two of those photographs that are actually of Amy. The rest of them are of her family. And that's what she, you know, loved to do, just look at her pictures, her family pictures all the time. Um, so it's very poignant. Yeah, a, a real sense of belonging. And I'm sure that will come out yeah. in, in the exhibition. 
And how is the how is the family coming to terms with her passing? I think it's been what nearly six years now. Well, this year will be six years in July. That's quite right, and it's difficult. But you know, we have the there's nothing we can do about her passing. It's it's happened, and we've got to make the best of it. And we have a, a wonderful foundation in her name, and uh, among many other things, we have a schools project. Where in the last two years, we spoke to 140,000 kids about the dangers of alcohol and drugs. I think that we're we're making the best of a of a horrible situation, and keeping Amy's name alive. The lovely Mitch Winehouse speaking to the equally lovely arts editor Kate Fulton there about the exhibition on Amy Winehouse's life at the Jewish Museum in Camden. You are listening to the best of the Jewish Views 5777 and still to come on this edition we'll remind ourselves what happened when Clive and Tony were joined on another classic schmooze by lawyer Denise Lester and education coordinator for West London Synagogue Jane Goff when they all discussed whether or not being Jewish carries a burden. But first, it's time now to remind ourselves of the time when community editor Diana Toman spoke to Miles Isaacs and his mum Melody about the extraordinary decision he took to donate some of his bar mitzvah money to Hatzolle UK. Diana started by asking Miles to tell us where his interest in all things medicine first came from. I've always been interested in hospital programmes and interested in helping people and wanting to help people, giving that person the extra smile on their face which they need every day. What a nice thing to say. And tell me exactly how what happened. You had a bar mitzvah. You had it already, I Yeah, I had my bar mitzvah in And January. presumably you got shed loads of money from that, did you? I wouldn't like to say how much <laughs> I got, but I had enough to donate. You had enough to donate, fine. And did you choose what you were going to donate? Yes, I did. Out of, what, a selection of machines? Or how did you know what they had? They sent us a list of all of what they had to offer, to which people could donate. And the smallest, I think, was starting from a first aid kit. And then it went up to a defibrillator. And I thought that I wanted to do the defibrillator because I would know that me donating that would go to someone's life. Tell me a little bit more about a defibrillator. Supposing I didn't know what a defibrillator did. A defibrillator is a machine which, when someone goes into cardiac arrest, they use and they press it down on that patient's chest and they give them a shock and hopefully they'll come back to life. Have you been watching that on television? Yes, I have. I thought you might have been, (laughs) right. And you obviously felt that that was a good thing to donate to. Yeah. Was that all your permits for money, or did you have a little bit left for yourself? I had a little bit left for myself, but I didn't want to spend it. Now, Melody, I gather that this is somewhat of a family tradition, this business of donating to good causes. Isn't it your daughter, in fact, who's about to donate her permits for money as well? Not quite yet, because her permits is not yet, but her brother, her oldest brother, he's donated to another charity after his permits for and you must be very proud then of all your family. I am. I'm very I am very proud. I want my children to always help others. I think it's very important that children are aware that they they should help others. And is this just Jewish charities? No, they've helped non-Jewish. Mars uh, went to the Macmillan Trust 
He went to the McMillan Trust. He did right. a cake stand with his sisters and friends to raise money for them. My elder son's done for the gorillas, helped to look after them and supported them by raising money a number of years ago. And Miles, are you planning to do anything else, in fact, in future? Well, hopefully for my wedding, I'd like to donate a life-saving kit. That's very nice. And that, see, you ought to see your mother's expression. This is obviously something she had. No, that's <laughs> wonderful. I'm so pleased that Mars is already thinking about his wedding when he's only 13. Right. <laughs> Good for you. You might have to consult your future wife about that, actually. <laughs> Right. Okay. So you're going to do, you're obviously a good person to think about donating in future. Is this anything to do with school? Not much, just, but the school does do a lot of charity work. But I would like the school to try to get Hetzola in as one of their charities to donate to. Which school do you go to? I go to Emmanuel College. And I imagine that they already do quite a lot of charity work. They do do a lot. And has anyone else in your form donated their permits for money? Or are you the only one? I'm the only one. Are you really? Gosh. Does that make everybody else really look at you and think, my goodness, Miles is really something? There's or are they thinking you're a bit, bit, bit odd, perhaps? There was that one time where one girl in, our, in my year told me that she saw me in the newspaper and then everyone started running up to me why were you why do why were you doing this what happened <laughs> and then you're standing there answering all of these questions from all of these people well that's what it's like being a star you see once you're in the paper everybody wants to know you mm -hmm. it's been a great treat honestly it has to talk thank to you. both of you well done we're all very proud of you at Jewish News thank thanks you. for coming in and thank you for inviting me Ah, bravo to Miles Isaacs and, of course, his mother, Melody, speaking to community editor Diana Toman there about the extraordinary and, frankly, amazing decision he took to donate some of his bar mitzvah for money to Hatsala UK to purchase life-saving, let's emphasise that, life-saving equipment. I think that, if I'm honest, when I was bar mitzvah age, all I was really worried about is the money that I received, what could it go on in terms of the latest games that were available for my console? So it really is a very admirable decision, I'm quite sure. And if you would like to see some of the photos, then we will also put a link up to the original story from the Jewish News about Miles's day at Hatzola. They've got some photos of him with the equipment that he donated. Now, you are listening to the best of the Jewish Views 5777, and still to come, we're going to have what some might call a treat for the end of this show. I think those of us on the team, however, might call it well, actually, I won't tell you what we'll call it. You'll just have to listen and see what I'm talking about. But it's time now to have a look back at yet another schmooze discussion. This time round, Clive and Tony are joined by lawyer Denise Lester and education coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff. The topic is about the question whether or not being Jewish carries a burden. Let's listen now what happened when Denise Lester answered that very point after Clive put it to her. Yes, I think it's both a blessing and a burden, actually. I think that if you take Judaism seriously, you have a responsibility to the uh, environment and to the wider community and to affect change for the wider good, tikkun olam. And that imposes quite a heavy personal responsibility. And then there's all the 
other tenets, which if you're inquiring and conflicted like me, <laughs> you like to know, and inquisitive, you like to know about. So then you get onto the realms of Jewish guilt, which my Roman Catholic friends seem to say may be allied to, open inverted commas, and I, Roman Catholic guilt. So there are similarities across religions. It's a blessing and a burden, I think, very much so. But there's a rich richness about the religion, culture and practice, which is wonderful. Now, Jane, you, as we know, are a convert. Do you have the same sort of feelings or is it much easier for you? At the moment, it's, I think, much easier. I don't have that kind of history of it so far. I think... The guilt. Yeah, the guilt I've got because I was initially raised a Catholic, so maybe But I'm still in that kind of throes of, of like a new birth where everything's so exciting and intense. But I think the burden for me today is my procrastination in learning because I think Denise said this richness, and it definitely is. It's something I've never felt so close to. The richness of Judaism, including the ritual and its traditions and what's behind it all. I mean, every day I think, my goodness, why didn't I know that? And it's like I feel guilty that I don't have that bringing up to fall back on. But I was going to say, Jane, if it's any consolation, people that were brought up as Jews from birth, also don't know a lot of things that go on because they never happened within their own families. So also, Mm. as you go through life, you you also start to learn things. But the whole basis of being Jewish, if you're born Jewish, is that this is anyway what the Jewish religion is about. You have to carry this burden, this guilt, because you are supposed to show the rest of the world the right way. But I, but I think we carry a burden in another way, don't we? People that were went through the Holocaust put their burden onto their children, maybe unintentionally, and the mm, children carry mm. that burden, and maybe their grandchildren also carry that mm. burden. My grandmother, my grandparents on both sides, came out of Lithuania and Latvia in pogroms, and my mother, to a certain extent, carried that guilt burden from her mother. And, and I think naturally unintentionally passed it on to myself and my brothers mm. and, and I guess unintentionally and naturally we pass it on to our children I've never discussed this with my children but it would be interesting to know from them as well how they mm. react I think it's not only the issue of the Holocaust it's the fact that we have been traditionally a nomadic people mm. and you know there's an inherent insecurity of being in a host country but yet never knowing where anti-semitism will raise its ugly head. I mean, Tony's mentioned the pogroms. Certainly my late grandmother remembers the uh, soldiers coming in Poland when she was a, a child. And, you know, we now have the issue of extremism, which is very much on the radar, and that uh, begets insecurity as well as mm. the right-wing neo-fascism. So people can think of being Jewish as a burden and they're, they're conscious of the difference that they are, although... We look the same, except for the anti-Semitic stereotypes of uh, somebody with a hooked nose, etc. Yeah, yeah. It's a difficult one. It's a difficult. What, one. what about? I mean, in Israel today, we've we've now got our own country mm-hmm. as, as Jews, but we've still got that burden of doing things absolutely 
correctly, if we can, to show the other nations around. And we're not living in host countries. That is our host country. Mm. It, it is our own country. Mm. Mm. So I, I guess we still carry a burden to show others how to do things right. And sometimes well, the Israelis don't it, get that right. Mm. But that's exactly what I was saying at the beginning, that that burden is meant. That's what Judaism is about, mm. because you have to show the right way to live. And therefore, it will always be a burden because you are mm. teaching it, which in a way, one of the greatest Jews of them all, if you see what I mean, Jesus tried to teach that lesson as well. Mm. And it turned into Christianity long after he died. Mm. Mm. But that's the, the whole Jewish ethic. But he was also put upon while he was living by, because he was teaching a form of Judaism. I mean, it was just another strain, wasn't it? Was well, it was, Judaism? if you like, at, at that time, Reformed Judaism, mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. yes. Is there such a thing, I want, you know, because we're talking about not just, you know, a hundred years of persecution, you're talking thousands of years of mm. persecution, and whether that through that there's been a collective, there's like a collective memory that is almost genetic. That's what, yes, exactly. I think, I think exactly. there is certainly common DNA strands, and, there, and I think that Jewish people can be inherently anxious, and that transmutes itself into the quest for self-knowledge and psychoanalysis mm. that goes on. And, you know, people like Woody Allen um, with his introspection. You know, going, going back to what um, Clive has said and to teach the right way, we are supposed to be a light unto nations. Um, and I say that not in any sort of supremacist or stance at all. I say that you flipping over the flip side of the burden is is the blessing because mm, mm. there is such a richness about being Jewish in terms of mm. all its multifacets. It can be the food from wherever, from Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Middle Eastern, the richness in music, the richness in culture, the desire, the desire to achieve and aspire, which drives people, that feeling of being an outsider. And people who are critical of us say, we have sort of disproportionate success and there's a club, but it's not that. It's that inherent insecurity mm. and the burden flipping over to being a blessing and, you know, desire mm. to achieve. Does that inherent insecurity make us push further forward to achieve, do you think? Of course. Yes. Yes, yes absolutely. Pushes us into it. Absolutely. It's like anybody that's insecure. That it's. You ask any successful person who appears successful, they uh, probably are bedeviled by a fear of failure. And there's a mm. there's a, a graphic design which has struck me about an iceberg where it all looks grand and swimmingly on top, but who knows what's going mm. on? Mm. Or you could have a duck, you know, that, that swims on top. One doesn't know. It's it's an inherent drive. You, I think. Do you also think the festivals that we have going through the year put guilt feeling onto us? I mean, some are, some are very cheery festivals, as we know, but others talk about. I mean, Shavuot, for instance, they read the Book of Ruth, mm. who was who lost her husband and and uh, daughters in daughters in laws lost. It. So Ruth's sons also died or oh, Naomi's sons I think that died it was Naomi's Ruth, wasn't it? And, and then they went off to find their own way so so they have, they've got that sort of guilt going on there yeah but and you it, should and yet we're celebrating because it's a joyous festival because you get away but you get away from the guilt all the time because mm. it because of the enjoyment of the festival mm. and equally on Yom Kippur one of the greatest things about it is on the day of atonement you go into the synagogue and although you pray for 25 hours and fast and you 
beg God to forgive you, you are told before you even start that God has already forgiven you. Mm. Mm. And that's what the whole day is for, to refresh yourself, to try and renew yourself. Mm. I kind of own it, isn't it? It's, I, I love the story of Ruth because I think... They were both very strong women for me, Naomi and Ruth, where they, you know, two women on their own going through the desert back to Bethlehem. And I just, I just say it's an amazing story. Well, then. you and but, she have something in common because yeah. she was the convert. She was convert well, yes. I mean, she, yeah, possibly. Yeah. But, um, yes. but what you're saying about Yom Kippur, for me, what I experienced is that it wasn't about, at the end of the day, it wasn't about God's forgiveness. It was about forgiving oneself and making amends. I think for me, it's always about making the amends to reflect over the year and think, have I done something that I haven't either forgiven somebody for or do I need to make an amend? Do I need to say sorry, but not just to say sorry? Is there a... An- to do more. I, yeah. think, do I, think, more. Uh, I think our listeners, particularly those who aren't Jewish, should not think that all our festivals are doom and gloom. No, We've got no. Purim where people dress up, get drunk. Get drunk. you know, get drunk. You know, the Jews can be great mm. drinkers of well, uh, well, vodka, you know, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Even if you talk about Pesach, I mean, we're talking about Absolutely. coming out of Egypt, but, the, but it's a joyous festival. Oh, it's it and psychological think, freedom yeah. Yeah. In, in, terms of, in terms of that. And there's always the food, there's always the food element. Yeah. And the thing that is, I think, that... Yeah. can unite Jewish people as well as a, is the humour. The humour yes. is yeah. just astonishing yeah. and the talent. I'll never forget being in Germany and watching a dub version of Seinfeld. So Seinfeld in German and I'm in there. <laughs> 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 it's just like so weird. <laughs> also, do you think our humour has come out of our burden and, and our guilt feeling and, mm. and the problems that our grandparents, great-grandparents and so on Oh, had? absolutely. Mm. And, I mean, it, and we've kept that humour to keep us buoyant. It's and come out of persecution. Yeah. yeah. Always. Yeah. Mm. But that's all part of the whole <laughs> the rich tapestry, yes. I guess, but, of being Jewish. Yeah. But you know, people who are not even uh, who are not practicing and have little awareness, I, I, I find it quite astonishing and quite heartwarming that they can be the ones who do the most charity and mm. are an unconscious they're unconscious agents mm. if one believes in yeah. an almighty. Mm. Also, the interfaith work that is done, yeah. where you have the community leading, you know, initiatives and the Nishan Shim, you know, Three Faiths Forum, initiatives with the Muslim community, the interfaith perspective. And I'm conscious, and I say this to Jay, that I always say that if I wasn't Jewish, I'd be Catholic because I love going to churches and I actually love the service and have been... I checked myself into Sunday school when I was younger. <laughs> I wanted to know. Yeah, I yeah, wanted to know. Yeah. So, you know, and the derivative position that comes, you know, I think being inquiring and, as Jane says, mm. you know, always wanting to know more. There are people that don't want to know anything mm. or people say, well, I'm nominally Jewish, but... They still enjoy the food and, mm. and the family and friendship and whatever. You yeah, know? You're right, actually, because I've got a friend of mine who does nothing. He says he's agnostic. Or, yeah, agnostic. Yeah. So doesn't believe in anything. And yet 
being Jewish, he loves the food, and he, and he doesn't do anything on festivals, but he mm. loves the festivals, although mm. they do nothing, but he talks about it, and mm. it's what we did when we were younger and mm. everything else. So, mm. so where does that leave people? Mm. You do, that's no burden, of course. That's just it's a because, person. It's because Judaism is not just a religion. It's a total way of life. Mm. Correct. Mm. That's we, the are, we are a people, but forget I mean, the religion. I think you can be Jewish even if you don't believe in God. Mm. I think Absolutely. That, yeah. I mean, you know, my, my my own family, we're everything from the most from the Lovavitchers to within my family, one relative is like, like yourself, who has converted and very from. And I save people who've fallen off the edge as well, you know, yeah. and we're missed ethically. And we all are very loud and proud to be a family of all different shapes mm. and nations mm. as and shades as it should be. Mm. There's only one thing about that, and that is the number of younger Jewish people who are really moving away from Judaism completely, caused sometimes by intermarriage, sometimes by a lack of interest, I think changing somewhat. Do, I, well, I mean, these, pe these people that are moving away, do they have 21st century burdens on, uh, piled on them mm, from somewhere? Mm, mm. Are they moving away because of that? Really is a fascinating discussion, isn't it? I mean, one would say that many, many respects being Jewish is an absolute privilege. But then, of course, you do have to take the rough with the smooth and knowing that ultimately, I think and I hope that most people see it as nothing but an absolute joy. Like I said, fascinating discussion. Thank you very much indeed to our Schmooze team there, in particular to lawyer Denise Lester and education coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff, who were our guests on that particular discussion. Okay, you are listening to the best of the Jewish Views for 5777. It's our final part of our look back over the past Jewish year. And I think it's at this stage that we need to confess that things don't always go as we planned here at the Jewish Views. Obviously, you hear the finished products and the final version and hopefully all sounding lovely. But once in a while, we do get things, well, shall we say, a little bit wrong. Have a listen to this. OK, let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper this week. And one of the, the biggest stories that is actually even featured in the national press, never mind the Jewish press, and that's the one about Kevin Myers, the Times journalist, who no doubt is starting to regret commenting on the likes of Vanessa Feltz and Claudia Winkles. Winkles? That's, that's not quite the right <laughs> word. <Claudia's> putting Winkles. <laughs> should we try that again, shall we? <laughs> who no doubt is starting to regret commenting on the likes of Vanessa Feltz and Claudia Winkleman's BBC pay. Made all the more embarrassing, of course, it is no hidden secret that I do work for the BBC and as a result of it, to not know my colleagues' names in such a spectacular way. Well, yeah, sorry about that, Claudia, if you are listening, I have learnt it by now. Well, also, it's not just me who gets it wrong from time to time. It's distinctly possible that Kate Fulton will not be terribly pleased with me for revealing this one. But it still makes me laugh. This was when Kate was speaking to me about her time at Leket, which is a charity that organises fruit picking in Israel. Anyway, Kate went to tell me a little bit about it. And, well, here's a lesson for us all. Think before we speak. What, it was very funny. You get there and you have no idea what you're going to be picking or how. I mean, for all I know, I was going to be given a hoe and some and some tools. You know, clearly I wouldn't know very much what to do with it. Oh, God, you are so horrible. I have to stop now. <laughs> no, no, 
look at me. He's the one laughing out of the corner of my eye. You can't have a go at me I'm for not that. In the studio, is that uh, to do? Okay, can I just say tools? Oh, that's what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! Oh, God. That is in no, the best no, bits. Oh, that God. is in the best bits. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I truly don't mean to be so immature, but honestly, that was terribly funny at the time. And it still does absolutely make me giggle whenever I hear it. But the truth is that actually, sometimes this can be quite contagious. You know, it's not just us on the Jewish Views team who can get it wrong. Sometimes the guests catch on as well. The uh, European courts as a port of ultimate um, uh, legislation, uh, les- uh, decision making. That always reminds me a little bit of, you remember Open All Hours with the late and truly great Ronnie Barker when he used to deliberately stutter his way through something and he would go out of his way to choose a different word just because he couldn't say the original intended word. Great sport there, Denise Lester, of course. So sorry, Denise, if you're listening, but it amused us. And just finally, I should also like to confess that I'm not always the coolest and calmest individual in the room. In fact, when I make mistakes... Boy, do I tell myself off for it. Jake Murray, the director of Norma Cohen's new play, Gone for a Burton. If you would like more information or indeed to find out how you can book tickets, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.u3. What? What the hell did I just say? What the f*** was that? Right, that is no more whiskey for me on a night like this, I tell you. Good grief. That is... Do you know what that was? That was a total amalgamation of me going to say it's on at JW3. That's really scary that I can do that kind of thing on autopilot. Okay, so note to self, I probably should learn to get a grip on the old temper for the beginning of this year. Still all the same. I just I think that looking back on that particular clip, I still don't quite know how it was possible that I just suddenly came out with an amalgamation of two totally different sentences there. But all the same. All right. I think that we've humiliated ourselves enough. In particular, I think that I've bore the brunt of most of that humiliation. But that really is it for our look through the best of 5777. We do hope that you have enjoyed our route through the archive. And thanks in particular to our guests for this episode. We need to thank Paul Charney from the Zionist Federation and Hannah Weisfeld from Yechad talking about the UN resolution. Also to Mitch Winehouse on his memories of Amy Winehouse and, of course, the Jewish Museum exhibition. Miles and Melody Isaacs, who were talking about donating Miles's bar mitzvah money to Hatzola. Good on him for that. And just to let you know that from next week, normal service will resume, where we will make sure we bring you up to date with all of the latest news, entertainment and community stories that affect the whole Jewish community. At this stage, I would like to thank all the team who work on this show, our producers, both past and present. We need to thank Tony Honickberg, Harley Baptist and Sue Greenberg. To our intrepid editors, Viv Krieger, our news editor, Kate Fulton, our arts editor, Diana Toman, our community editor. And we can't forget our very own Clive Roslin, who week after week heads up some of the most lively discussions in the community. And also, we mustn't forget the team at The Jewish News, who have made us just part of their weekly furniture. So 
huge thanks goes to Richard, Justin, Fran, Jack, Andrew and all the other members of the team there who work with us. And last, but by absolutely no means least, we need to thank you at home for listening. Here's to a really, truly great 5778. Please do continue to listen. And don't forget that we always love to hear from you. You can always email us at any time, studio at jewishviews.co.uk and contact us through social media as well. On Facebook, we're facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. And on Twitter, it's at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all those details can be found at our website, jewishviews.co.uk. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Please do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.